So hello and welcome. Happy Friday. Today is Friday, September the 8th, and this is Backyard Beekeeping Questions and Answers, episode number 223. I'm Frederick Dunn, and this is The Way to Be. So I want to thank you for being here with me today and for spending your valuable time. Uh, we have quite a bit to go over, and this is a very busy time of year for beekeepers in the northeastern United States, where I reside in the state of Pennsylvania. So if you want to know what we're going to talk about today, please look down in the video description below and you will see all the items listed in order and any associated links that might be able to help you out. So you might wonder what the temperature is like outside, but if you watch the opening carefully, you know we're in a state of uh, steady drizzle right now. We've had recent rain, 70 degrees Fahrenheit outside. That's 21 degrees Celsius. And uh, let's see, we did get three quarters of an inch of rain. I know, what does it matter to you, you know, unless you live where I am? But I hope that the weather conditions are decent and that you're wrapping up your productive uh, foraging year with your bees in good shape. The wind is light, three miles an hour, so that's no big deal. 86% relative humidity. You may have noticed there's a lot of bearding on the outside of those hives. And uh, even some of the really large hives, it made no difference insulated like the lands hives plenty of bearding out there by the way the lands hives 15 full frames they're at their limits and i only have two of them so i have nowhere to go with them my wife is pressing me to remove honey from the lands hives now but i'm waiting until the middle of next week or later on a nice hot day to pull honey and uh what else for those of you who are looking at the weekend ahead heavy rain to light rain but it's going to rain. So, and I have a bee presentation outside tomorrow talking to people about forage, honeybees, an introduction. So it's lots of fun. Guess who my sidekick's going to be? My grandson, seven years old. He's going to be there and he's going to talk to them because we're presenting to teenagers. It's going to be a great group. Air quality right now is outstanding. So the forest fire stuff, no great surprise because of all the rain. We don't have smog. So the bees are not impacted either. Nectar flow is really strong goldenrod, and based on the observations, walking around and looking at everything, we're about halfway through. That means uh, we want to take the honey off next week, and the reason for that is I want to leave enough time after we take the honey off for the bees to restore what we've taken off. Now, I try to start off each year by letting the bees build up their resources and their reserves before anything else happens, so that for me is a deep and then a medium box and that's eight or ten frame and then with the uh, five frame nucleus hives they're in triples so that's where we start the year those are utility resource hives and uh, i didn't have to rob them too much this year because all the other bees did so well i didn't have to do any emergency requeening although we did bring in two queens and those are carniolans, and I'll explain why later at the end of today's presentation. And I do want to give a shout out to my grandson, seven years old. Uh, he wants, he, every day he asks me if he can work beehives with me. And he's very, very motivated. So um, we were replacing beehive equipment. I don't know if you've ever done that on a colony that's full and uh, in full production. But I've got some brood boxes that are old and uh, we needed to get them out and replace them with new ones. So that means taking off every frame. Now what's the best time of the day to do that? You want to do that midday. 
So anytime after lunch when the weather's good, nice and sunny would be helpful. It happened to be a little breezy. Now because we're pulling apart the hives and he wanted to be right there to scrape propolis and he likes to scrape beeswax and put the pieces in the bucket and so on, uh, the bees are going to get upset. So uh, he had his full bee suit on, gloves, everything, and that turned out to be good news because we got into some large hives. And when you get into large hives, they have a lot of extra workers. They have a lot of extra guards. And uh, when you get into the brood, even though you lightly smoke them to get them under control, they do come at your face pretty intensely. So they were all over him. And you know what he did? He stood right there and just listened to everything I told him to do. And he wasn't bothered in the least to have bees constantly pinging his veil, trying to get to him. And uh, he held his own. So stayed calm. A lot of people panic even in bee suits when they get a bunch of angry bees after them. And then uh, we did the, the walk-off. So it was a great opportunity to gauge that hive. Talk to him about it. Why are they upset right now? What do you think's going on? Well, we're in the brood. That's part of it. It's the middle of a nectar flow too. They don't like to be bothered during that. Uh, the other thing is we're pulling everything apart. And I don't mean frame by frame, but we pulled, it's a three box stack and we pulled all three of them off and we had to restack them. So we're not picking it up like somebody that has one of those really nice hive lift systems. Uh, we pick up, you know, the top box and put that on a cover and then we pick up the middle box and we put that on top of that box and we take the bottom box and we had to set it aside because the new box, the brood box is what we were replacing. So then we do pull each frame one by one and that's when they really got excited about us so the other part of that is what does it mean for the bees to be upset and what is you know what level should we expect he had a good 20 bees after him so then let's find out if they're really defensive or is it our fault it's definitely our fault but i wanted him to understand now let's just walk it off so we started walking away and giving a sense of the distance from the hive and how far and pretty soon it tapered off. There were only two or three after us and then there was one angry worker that followed us for a good, I don't know, 50 yards. So not bad. And then you know what he did on his own? Ran out uh, to the driveway and to my wife and wanted everybody to understand that uh, the bees are on the rampage. So if you're going to be here, uh, you should probably wear a veil or you should make preparations for getting stung for what they would think is no reason because these beehives are not far from my driveway. That was very interesting that he did that and no one was stung. He didn't get any stings except on his glove and it just was a good test for him. So the hive was not an overly defensive hive. We were just doing things to them that they were naturally trying to defend against and everything went great. So I was very proud of him for that. Uh, now let's go right in. If you want to see uh, how to get your own topic submitted for consideration for a Friday Q&A, please also follow the link to my website, which is thewaytobe.org. And there's a page marked The Way to Be. Click on it. There's a form for you to fill out. Not guaranteed your topic will be discussed, but I'll look at it. I read all of them. And uh, then we'll see what uh, might be interesting for people like you to listen to today. So the very first question comes from Sandra from Maryland. And uh, for last name, it just says Icy Mountain Honey. That's a good name for a bee operation. Anyway, so rabbit hole for you, it says. Is it true using metal with or in honey destroys the enzymes? 
Well, I don't know if it destroys the enzymes, but as with any other topic, I did feel like I had an answer right away, but I did my research anyway. Why not? Let's find out when you're storing honey, what does it interact with and what surfaces would cause honey, which is slightly on the acid side. Uh, what would it interact with and what would be the ramifications of that? I can tell you right off the bat that standard carbon steel, that's not stainless, that's not chrome plated. CFE, we called that in the metallurgy world, which it has ferron in it, which is iron. So there was an uncapping tank that I got from a company that I won't name, but the initial screen that was in the bottom of it was carbon steel. It was not stainless. So what happened was you had to keep it really clean. You're not going to actually use motor oil on it, for example, to protect it. So you have to be careful. Whatever you put on any surface that your honey is going to come in contact with is eventually going to end up in whatever your final container is going to be. And the number one risk right off the bat is it's going to change the flavor of your honey. So this goes beyond enzyme impact, you know, because when we talk about the enzymes and all those delicate things that happen in your honey and all the benefits of the honey, that really is more of a concern when you're thinking about how much filtering you're going to do when you're going to take on all the pollen and stuff like that. How much you're going to have to heat it to get it through those filters. Heat is far more detrimental. So I don't heat anything above 105 degrees Fahrenheit. But the thing is, I ran it through that uncapping tank and the exposure to that carbon steel flavored the honey. It was ruined. So now that's not a huge deal because it's the uncapping tank. It's not my extractor, right? And that's why it kind of got through. I was thinking it would be okay. It even slightly altered the color of the honey. So that's the other thing. Flavor and presentation of your honey can be altered by contact with metal, right? So um, the next stage is, of course your extraction system so your extraction equipment somebody recently posted on social media on facebook they were volunteering to donate an old galvanized uh, extractor and that's what they used to be made out of and what is galvanizing that's zinc and it's usually zinc over carbon steel so the zinc is a cathodic protection for the iron oxide that would otherwise form on the surface of the steel so, but now you're putting zinc in your honey, right? So that was no great offer uh, to offer to give that away in exchange for some honey, of course. But uh, I do not recommend using any of those old extractors that have zinc protection on them. Because uh, the zinc eventually liberates itself into your honey and so on. And uh, so we don't want that. We want as little to get into our honey as possible. So we have to think down the road every surface it's going to come in contact with and what interaction the honey is going to have with those surfaces. And uh, so we look at storage containers. Now, I don't like to store my honey for more than 24 or 48 hours, period. I put it right into the final jars as quick as I can. Now, I understand keeping your honey in a hot room and letting the tiny bubbles dissipate and rise to the surface and all that stuff, that's all great and that's part of processing. And most people will be putting their... Um, honey into food grade plastic buckets. So to my knowledge and based on my research, I could find no evidence that food grade plastic interacts with the honey and liberates any parts of itself. And there's no evidence I could find that the honey etches or otherwise alters the surface of the food grade plastic, uh, five gallon and seven gallon buckets are the most common. 
So those are pretty safe, but I don't like to leave them in there. And the reason for that is I don't want to have to heat the honey later if it starts to set. And by set, I mean it becomes crystallized. So the lower amount of filtering that you do, the more particulates are in your honey, and then that results in crystals forming on the particulates, and then of course your honey being set. Um, and so to avoid that, I make sure and get it into the final jars as quickly as possible. And for me, final jars, glass. I don't have any plastic containers for my final, um, you know, containers for the honey that I'm gonna sell or deliver to people. And that's because we know for sure that ball uh, glass jars do not interact with the honey and don't alter its flavor. And you see no evidence of the honey being able to work on the surface of the glass and corrode into it or etch into it or anything like that. Uh, so I don't use, you know, when I first started out beekeeping, we used honey jars. And they were the plastic honey bear jars, you know, pretty standard. Everybody has seen them. And there you just, you squeeze the honey out. Now, does that change the flavor of your honey? Nope. So pretty safe, lightweight. And that's why I think it's used a lot commercially. When we're giving out glass jars with honey in it, there's a lot of weight there. So if you were shipping it, those are all considerations, right? The cost of delivery, the cost of equipment, the bottle itself. So glass jars run into money. And thanks to all the preppers and stay-at-home doomsday people, uh, ball jars, which are canning jars, were snapped up really fast, but uh, they're all they're caught up now, so you can get them. So I don't recommend hoarding them, but make sure you have enough glass jars ahead of time when the nectar flows over and you're bottling your honey. So I use glass. Now, is it bad to use plastic? No, I just don't use it. It's not going to change the flavor. So then the other part of that is, what else does... Uh, your honey come in contact with, I can name these things based on the research that I did. Avoid iron. So iron is just that, F-E, iron. Uh, copper and tin. So often uh, tin is coating carbon steel. So again, this is a throwback to the way things kind of used to be. I don't know of anyone who's using tin cans anymore, for example. Uh, tin cans used to have uh, tinning on them. And then the tin would eventually wear away and then you get a rusted can. But now most people use aluminum. Aluminum was not listed as one of the risky materials to put it in contact with. But uh, the other thing is we look at extractors today and look at what they're made out of. There are food grade plastic hand crank style extractors for extracting your honey. So those again, lightweight, inexpensive to make. And uh, they could last a pretty long time. The gears and the part where you're actually turning the spinner and things like that uh, would probably be metal also. And I'm going to hope that anything that comes in contact with your honey is stainless steel. And I want to explain to you that there are different grades of stainless steel. Did you know that some stainless steel actually can oxidize or rust a little bit? So when you're looking at your extractors, uh, this is a question that you might ask the person that manufactures it. Or if you're looking at one in a showroom, have a magnet in your pocket. If there's any iron content at all, and stainless steel is often referred to as CRES, C-R-E-S, which means corrosion resistant steel. And then there's 400 series that has iron in it. So your magnet would act on stainless steel if it's 400 series. If it's 300 series, now we have no ferron in it, no iron, and your magnet's not going to stick to it at all. 
So those are the different grades. And of course, when you're putting honey in it, your honey shouldn't be standing and for extended periods of time in your stainless steel extractor. It's not that 400 series would not work, but I'm just telling you, you run the potential of having some oxidation on 400 series over 300 series. So now we get that out of the way. But while you're extracting, of course, we're supposed to keep our extractors open. So the honey gate on your extractor should be open. So even while you're extracting your honey, it should be flowing out before it gets up to where the ball bearings are and things like that, which may not be, uh, again, you know, something that wouldn't change or potentially alter the flavor of your honey. So, and we don't want to get involved with the food grade lubrication and things like that on the interior works of your extractor. So make sure that you're keeping it drained out and keep it low. And then it goes into a honey bucket, which I've never seen a stainless steel honey bucket. So you're probably using food grade honey buckets. And look into this, by the way, that just occurred to me. Uh, you know, we have the tops for the food grade buckets that snap on, but there are tops that come in two parts and it has a gasket on it and they're designed to be used over and over and open and closed over and over. So if you look up food grade five gallon or seven gallon bucket covers, okay, you're going to find that these covers come in two pieces and one part snaps onto your bucket and stays there permanently and there's a food grade gasket. They're very careful about labeling these things to be used for food grade purposes. And then uh, those are much more durable. And since these buckets get used over and over again, how much better is it to have a two-part food grade lid on your bucket that screws shut and unscrews to open it and then has another gasket intermediate to that? So I think those are really good. I have a bunch of them now. I'm just using them. And after all the years of doing this, I'm just now adding those because you can sit on your buckets or stack your buckets and they're, they're tougher now. So what else do we have to do? Do not use metal utensils to stir or scoop honey. I don't know if you've ever been to a honey tasting, but recently, well, last year, I interviewed a honey sommelier, right? So these are experts in the flavor and composition and mouthfeel and everything else when it uh, is pertinent to honey. So they're honey judging, right? So let's take a look at the people that are experts in tasting honey and wanting to taste nothing but honey. You're going to see that what they sample the honey with is either, frequently I see them use bamboo sticks or pieces of bamboo wood, almost like a tongue depressor, right? And then sometimes you'll also see people use um, plastic spoons. And the plastic, again, is not going to, if you take a spoon and you rest it on your tongue, nothing else, you can usually taste the spoon. It has a metallic taste. So if you can taste the spoon by itself, then you're also going to have an impact on the flavor of your honey when the honey is in it while you manipulate it. Now, is this at a meaningful level? No, we're talking about the nitty gritty, the fine nuanced aspect of not altering the honey. So we're limiting what it comes in contact with and how that impacts your personal relationship with how the honey is going to smell and how it's going to taste. So that's why the experts, these are at the highest levels. Me personally, I have a 300 series stainless steel spoon that I stir my honey and my tea with. So I don't notice 
any difference. But again, I'm not trying to fine tune what happens to my honey. So does it destroy the enzymes? I don't think it destroys the enzymes. Keep in mind, it has to be in direct contact. So how much of the honey is in contact with the metal? What is the time duration that it's in contact with the metal? So if it's not being stored in there, should you then leave your spoon in your drink? Maybe that would have some impact. How much of the spoon, how much of the composition of that material is going to actually liberate itself into the liquid? Probably not much. I think direct contact. But if you can taste something, you're getting particulates off of it. Think about that. So reevaluate your silverware. Let's see what else. Do, 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 do. Food grade plastics, metal spoons. If you're going to use a metal spoon, wash before and after. I guess and this, these are for the people now remember that are really getting into it these are the people that you know are still arguing over vinyl versus digital music and things like that they're only applying this to honey if you're trying to absolutely taste nothing but the honey that's how you do it so destroy the enzymes not to my knowledge alter the appearance and flavor risky business so moving on to question number two Interesting question, though, because I hadn't thought about that before. Uh, this comes from Brad, Chester, New Hampshire. Oh, yeah, so Brad had a question last time. This is a follow-up, giving us the feedback. So, hi, Fred. Thanks for taking my question last week. Question number three of episode 220. So, since we're at 223 now. All right, so it's been a couple weeks. Concerning when I need to purchase a new queen after my observation hive swarm. You are right on the money, as usual, with your advice. I'm very happy to report I observed a bunch of eggs laid on the outside visible frames this morning. That is August 21st of 2023. So happy. There you go. Didn't need to replace the queen. See? Just a little patience. Look at the other things that are going on. So I appreciate Brad giving us that follow-up. Jumping on to question number three comes from Ralph from Honey Grove, Pennsylvania. Is that a real place? No, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, the city is Honey Grove, Pennsylvania. I didn't even know there was a Honey Grove. What a great place to raise bees. Anyway, this is my first year beekeeping and I had two colonies that had high wash counts. And so for those of you who don't know, wash counts means that we're washing uh, nurse bees or honeybees from the hive and we're counting mites to come off of them. So. My question is, should I replace the queens in those hives? It doesn't say what the high counts were, by the way. I would have been very interested. Are we talking 20, 10, 5, 50? So anyway, should I replace the queens in those hives? Are those queens spreading viruses to the next generation of brood? Thank you for the way to be videos. Okay, so, and you're welcome and thanks, Ralph, for being a viewer and submitting this topic. When you do a mite wash and you get varrodestructor mites that show up and it's past your threshold. So coming into, we're in the month of September, this is when people become frequently alarmed when they start to do mite washes, whatever your method is. If you're using alcohol washes, if you're using, um, you know, Donna Ultra Free and Clear dish soap, whatever you're using, when you get a bunch of mites and you count them out, uh, this is the time of year when the mite numbers rise. And mites are fluid. In other words, they are showing up. If they're in one of your hives in your apiary, they're going to start to show up all over the place. 
Now the, the difference will be in how each colony manages the mites that are in the colony. So we have drones spreading mites around. We have foragers that are spreading mites around. There's so much drift, you would not believe it. At any given moment, roughly 20% of the occupants in your beehive may not be originally from that queen. So they can be shifting mites all over the place. So keep records about what colonies are doing extremely well. The question comes down to the queens, the queens spreading viruses. So let's break it down just so we can think about that. We're backyard beekeepers. Do we want to remove our queens and replace them right now because we have a colony with a high mite count of an undetermined number? We definitely want to treat the mites. We want to get those under control because what's coming up very soon will be the production of the fat body winter bees that uh, when the weather starts to turn cold, when we hit that fall dearth, which is coming up probably in October here, um, what will happen is we need maximum nutrition for that. This is why getting your mites under control before now is a very good idea. So let's say there's nothing, you know, let's just deal with what we have right now. So should we be getting rid of the queen if we had a high mite count in a colony? So that's not a simple direct uh, correlation with the number of mites that are in the hive because the mites, as I just mentioned, could be coming in and departing from a hive and not necessarily focus exclusively on your brood and your nurse bees. So how is the queen getting these diseases that are vectored by the varroa destructor mites that then feed on your nurse bees and then the nurse bees, what are they doing? They're attending to all the other developmentally critical bees in your hive because they are the brood that's open and developing, that's when they're fed. So there also, there's a queen's retinue. These are nurse bees that attend to the queen full time. They feed the queen, they groom the queen. The queen is not directly going to be fed upon by mites. In fact, queens that are in production, so the queen that's developing in a queen cell is not fed upon by mites. And the reason for that is she spends such little time in the pupa state. So she's not a good, source for mites to reproduce. The number one source for mites to reproduce are the drones because they spend so much time in their pupa state. So the thing is, uh, how's the queen looking? So let's talk about her brood patterns, look at uh, her production. Is the brood consistent? Is there a, a predictable rings of brood going out capped and then she starts over? Or does it look like somebody hit it with a shotgun and there's a bunch of empty cells all over the place and is the brood's patterns? scattered around. Uh, if it's a consistent, good brood pattern and everything looks good as far as the queen goes, her production is good, and she's performing as you would expect, I would not replace that queen just because I had a strong mite count. Now keep in mind, I'm just sharing my opinion on that. Uh, if I found this in my hive and did a mite count, a mite wash, and I found, you know, 15 mites, let's say, uh, I would treat them. So I would try to get rid of those mites and I definitely would document which hive and, and keep these records. I don't care if you have two hives. Uh, always write down what you find and when so you can have a game plan and also so that you'll know later what the results were based on the things that you did. So um, I would not replace the queen unless she indicated that she was not doing well because we're at a critical time of year, but this colony is in full production. So if you brought in a queen that's already a laying queen, 
this is an example of uh, where a resource nuke might help you out, but guess what you're doing to a resource nuke this time of year? If you take their queen away, colonies now don't have the time to replace their queen. So sure, we made queen right, your big colony, your most robust colony, but uh, your number one culprit in there is to get rid of your burrow destructor mites. So replacing the queen doesn't solve all your problems and you might be getting rid of a really good queen. So I don't think she's a serious threat to the colony unless, as I said, she's demonstrating that she's failing in some other way. Because when we now pull a queen out of a resource nuke, they have to make a new one. They have to make a new one from the eggs that are in there. We're 30 days out from that. So 30 days from now, we are in October. So they would be losing their numbers all the way up until they start to produce newly emerging brood in that colony. And not only that, the food and resources have to be coming in in enough abundance that they can keep the nutrition up to where the queen that they're going to replace now is in prime shape. What are the chances she's in prime shape right now? So if we get to the end of it and now we've got leaned out nectar resources We've got leaned out protein, so the pollen production is way down. It just goes hand in hand with the onset of fall, the end of summer. And uh, so this is not the time to be having colonies raising new queens on their own. So if you buy in a queen, uh, the next question I ask on that is, where did that queen come from? Where is she being bred? And what are the conditions where those queens are being produced? Because even people that sell queens, uh, they have to have good nutrition and their queens have to be healthy and it has to be good stock. And this is a time of year when most of the big queen breeders are not selling queens anymore. So where's that queen going to come from? And will she be better than the one you already have? And what's your plan for the queen that you currently have? I wouldn't just kill her off. I know I gave a lengthy answer for that, but I wanted to give some some alternatives, some reasons why I would not swap her out, unless, again, you know, there are other brood issues and things going on. Question number four comes from Shauna from South Dakota. Question about storing honey supers. I see many people set them out to be cleaned up by the bees, or they put them back on the colony for a short period of time to clean them up. That's true. So people have robbing stations they put them out at, or once you've extracted the honey from the frames, uh, you put them back in the super that you removed, and then you put them back on to the same colony that you took them off of, and then the bees will clean those up for you. Then you pull them off again, because remember, during a dearth period, by the way, it's a good time to have them do that. They get the gleanings from that, and nothing's going to clean up your cells better than the tongues of those worker bees inside the hive. But is there anything wrong with just letting the little bit of leftover honey dry on the frames? Seems like the comb gets kind of torn up by the bees when it is set out. And that's true because wasps, hornets, competing bees, if you want to see as, you know, the nectar draws off and dries up in the environment and we start to put out, if you set up robbing stations that I have in the past, if you put them out to be cleaned up like that, there is a feeding frenzy. It is, they are not friendly. They go after each other, wasps and bees. The bees, by the way, dominate the feeding stations. Vespa Crabro, and that's the European hornet. And if we've got the bald-faced hornets are in there, yellow jackets are in there, they're all muscled out by the honeybees that come in pure numbers that 
force them out and they feed in packs and they're just a mess on there. The only advantage that the hornets and wasps have is that they can fly out there and they start to feed earlier in the morning. So if you're trying to avoid letting those vespids benefit from the honey that you're putting out to be cleaned up, wait until about 10 a.m., then put your frames and everything out. And here's what uh, I did in the spring with winter leftovers, right? I took the hive butler totes and because they tilt up on the side and they index all your frames in them and I just put it right on its side and I have a bench in the woods that they sit on. And then uh, don't forget to put them away at night and then put them out again in the warmth of uh, late morning. So then they all clean them up and then you go to storage. Now, what if you don't want to do that? Uh, I would not recommend leaving that sticky mess because after you've extracted from your honey frames, you've uncapped, you've extracted, you spun them out and you put them in totes or in the frames or boxes or however you're going to store them, you know, they drip honey. So there's a lot of stickiness and there's also a lot of appeal from ants and everything else that are trying to follow up on that sticky, sugary survival resource that you've put somewhere. So if you're not going to put it out for feeding and if you're not going to put it back on the hive to be cleaned up, the next thing I recommend is that you hose them off. So uh, you can use cold, fresh water to do that. And uh, hot water works too. Hot water works pretty darn fast. And then the bees can come. And all you do is if you've got sawhorses, you know, I don't know what you have, but uh, you set up a rack for your frames and then you just hose them off. The other thing that you can do is after they've been washed clean, you're going to see a bunch of bees and flies and everything else in the grass under and around wherever you hose off your frames. So that's something to think about when you take your frames out and you put them on a rack and you hose them off. Um, you want to think about the area and it should not be where your family likes to hang out because the grass is going to be alive with insects after that. But then you can also dip or spray each frame in 10% bleach solution. And that also just makes sure that no bacteria, no mold or anything is going to form on your frames, on your drawn comb. And then they dry out and go into your storage containers, whatever that happens to be. So that would be my recommendation. If you're not going to feed them or anything, rather than leave the honey on, I would wash it off and then just let them dry out over winter. And you're good to go. Also make sure the area where you're putting them is ventilated. You have kind of two options. Either ventilate it, like have little fans blowing, because uh, the wax moth does not like air movement, does not like to be exposed. They like things to be all closed up, but with little accesses so they can lay their eggs. So um, keeping air movement, light drives them away, but I think it's unlikely that you're going to want to have light all over your frames. And the other thing in the past that I've done is I've used trash bags. So in other words, I put a trash bag down on the concrete, put the first box on that trash bag, fold the trash bag over the top of that box, put the next box on that, fold the next trash bag over the top of that. So you get uh, protection for three boxes and then the top of that's open, another trash bag, and then you keep going like that. So then you can close them up. I never had a problem with anything getting into that setup and industrial trash bags are like six mils and there are smaller ones that are or thinner ones that are three mils but nothing has ever chewed into them nothing ever tried to get into that and uh, it also keeps any drippings from upper frames from dripping down through 
and then collecting all at the bottom because there's a trash bag or a piece of plastic between each of your frames. So there's lots of options, each of your boxes. So there's lots of options for how you want to store your stuff, but that's what I would do. Although I would personally just kind of let them chew it up and clean it up. As I've said, nothing's cleaner than that. In fact, just thought of this too. What if we set those uh, frames out on totes with um, like expanded metal or if you used cage wire or something like that to cover the tote, then put your frames out on those racks. Then when they tear off the bits of wax and everything else, where's it going to go? Down into the tote. All the bees have access to that. They'll clean it up and you'll get the wax that they tear off so it's not totally it's not a total loss just something to do or not lots of options and i highly recommend holding those until at the end of your nectar flow because it will give these potential robbers something to do well away from your apiary so you don't want them if you've got a hive right now that's being visited and you can't tell, is, are they being robbed or is that just a lot of activity at the entrance? If you see them pinging on the sides, under the lid, at the back, flying under the bottom, assuming your hive is elevated, you've got robbers interested. Look and see that when wasps and things like that fly up and land on your landing board, are they being run off immediately or are wasps getting into your hive and not being repelled? That is a problem. What we want to do is going to be part of my closeout comments for today anyway. So question number five, moving right along, feed them during the dearth at the end. Damien from, oh man, Dunedin, Otago, New Zealand. I'm sure I just messed that up. So I'm sorry, Damien, but from New Zealand, I have a vague memory of you talking about drilling holes in your hive walls to allow vaporization with OA. So OA is oxalic acid. How are you placing the hole and bolt to avoid hitting frames or stopping the OA distribution? Great question. I have a visual. So first thing I'm going to mention, slatted rack. This is a slatted rack, 10 frame slatted rack, and it sits right on top of the bottom board of a standard Langstroth hive, this particular one, 10 frames. So there are 10 slats that line up with it, right? And then this is the leading block here that uh, the entrance would be under it on the front of your hive. And of course this is supposed to encourage your queen to go ahead and lay on the frames in the box above this all the way down, filling the frame. They work for that. Guess what else they do? They provide a spacer, because look underneath, this is all well up off the bottom, and uh, provide space underneath where bees are supposed to hang out, extra bees are not employed, keeps the winter winds from blowing up in here and everything else, but if you turn it to the back, it's also a place where I drill my quarter inch hole. So this only works if you've got a system that delivers the oxalic acid as a sublimation and uh, it does that with a tube. So these are quarter inch openings. I have two here. 
This one's annoying because it's a thumb screw and it's quarter inch threaded and I have to unscrew it. If I had pliers, I would just pull it. Oh, look, I can pull it out. So it's just a threaded thumb screw. You can see it's got a little oxidation on it. The bees will propolize that. So anyway, I put that through under the slats. So the slats finish up here, you've got an open space. So there's no concern that your tube from your oxalic acid, instant vape, pro vape, whatever you've got, uh, there's no concern, or the Larabi's uh, oxalic acid vaporizer. Uh, you want to make sure that it doesn't interact with anything when you go through. So if you notice, these are long. So I believe this one is an inch and a quarter. So it goes all the way through the wood and sticks through to the inside. That's what you want because you want to make sure that it's going to keep the whole pathway clear. You do not want to go to introduce your oxalic acid and have that blow back or pop the lid off. The next one is up here between the slats. So you drill your hole so that your quarter 20 threaded bolt or whatever it happens to be. Now some people have said that they use golf tees. I'm going to highly recommend not using the golf tee. And that's just because, if you notice, this is a full quarter inch, quarter 20 thread. So a quarter inch in diameter, 20 threads per inch is what that quarter 20 comes from. But uh, if you stick this through all the way in and then you pull it out, we know that there's a quarter inch diameter opening all the way into the hive and there's no restriction on the flow of your oxalic acid going in there. So if you just have a golf tee, golf tees can be pretty narrow at the end and the bees are going to propolize that up. So you're going to have to pull that out. But I have a little concern about the fact that a golf tee is not a quarter inch in diameter. Therefore, the hole that's going in to deliver your oxalic acid vapor. So it's sublimated oxalic acid. Um, I don't want any restriction on that diametrically for that tube going in. Your tube is going to fit a quarter inch hole. And we don't want anything to be smaller than a quarter inch at any point going through that. So now some of you are saying, yeah, but I don't have those slatted rags. A lot of good that did. You're telling us how to use that and we don't care. So what if you had a reversible solid bottom board? So if you look at these reversible boards, a lot of people buy these. I highly recommend them. Let me recommend something else about a bottom board. Please do not buy the plywood laminated bottom boards. Those, when I talked earlier today about uh, replacing hive equipment with my grandson, uh, one of the things we were replacing was the uh, laminated bottom boards, which were in terrible shape, okay? Solid stock, cedar's best, pine's okay, and this is finished with um, eco wood. So anyway, if you notice they're reversible, see this one right here, 3 eighths of an inch. Flip it over, and you've got a three-quarters of an inch space. So guess what you can do at the back of that on the three-quarter inch side? You can have a quarter 20 threaded bolt, and you put that through. I just got these because they have the white ends on them, or the red uh, ends on them. They're very easy to pull out. And this is because while I'm delivering the OA, I put these up on top of things or I, I put them places and this red piece helps me find it easier. And I got these from Amazon, easy to find. But that delivers your oxalic acid right in at the bottom board. Now, some people will suggest that you need to put in your oxalic acid higher up in the hive when you're delivering it. 
Well, not when it's vaporization because, and I've done these tests many times over, it makes no difference where you introduce the oxalic acid. So then why isn't my uh, entrance hole directly in the center? It's because I also see no reason why I want to have that initial puff of uh, oxalic acid going in at whatever temperature it goes into the hive directly under brood. So having it off to the side between the first and second frame is where you want to drill your holes. And so then it comes in and goes up and it's very rare to have brood all the way to the bottom in your brood box on the first and second frame or the ninth or 10th frame before the other side of the hive. So I'd much rather do that than deliver it dead center. And for those of you who are using pans to deliver your oxalic acid, uh, those tend to go in straight through the middle. And here's what I recommend too, that you use slatted racks or a spacer at the bottom. And the reason is when you put in those pans, and I did that years ago when I first started testing uh, oxalic acid here, and there were always dead bees on the pan and you risk setting fire to beeswax. And that's because on the bottoms of the frame, sometimes there's drone comb, there's burr comb. And if you push that pan directly in that and in direct contact with that beeswax, then you could start a fire with it. So a spacer is important and run your hive tool in there first and make sure that wherever that pan is gonna be, it's not gonna be in direct contact with beeswax. So I hope that answers that question. And my favorite, just in case somebody asks, what is my favorite oxalic acid vaporization tool? And I know I'll get pushed back because it's expensive, but it's the Instant Vap, I-N-S-T-A-N-T-V-A-P. That thing delivers a predictable temperature, a consistent temperature, runs off of a battery, so I do not need any electrical cords anywhere with me, there's no fire or ignition for it. It runs off of DeWalt or some other batteries that are pretty common in the uh, battery powered tool industry. And uh, it is the fastest delivery system. And because it has very good temperature parameter controls on it, um, the oxalic acid coming out of it is not degrading the way it can when you do not have thermal control. Some people think that when you deliver the oxalic acid, all you have to do is really heat it up and get it to sublimate, get it into a gas form. And they're using torches and trying a lot of different tools and things that are dirt cheap to do and to use, right? But uh, the chemistry of that is pretty complicated and you might actually be, number one, reducing the amount of oxalic acid getting into the hive and onto the surfaces, which is what we need for it to do. So the oxalic acid interacts with varroa destructor mites. They can't climb on bees anymore. They end up dead on the bottom. Um, if you flash heat that and the temperatures get too high, Randy Oliver did some excellent observations on that. Um, it can degrade the oxalic acid and develop other gases that you don't want inside your hive. One of those being carbon monoxide. So be very careful how you deliver oxalic acid, if that's what you're using, how you deliver that to your bees, and what system you're using to sublimate it, and what kind of temperature parameters there are associated with that system. I did an interview with Janos, who is the one who developed the instant vape, 
and he did some of his own scientific evaluations, but his uh, desire was for other laboratories and other analysts to pick it up and kind of find out really what we're putting in the hive when oxalic acid is released at higher temperatures. And these higher temperatures even happen with some of the electrical delivery systems. And that's because they have temperature parameters set into them as well. But when you put the oxalic acid in, remember this unit is trying to keep a constant temperature, but it cools down immediately because sublimation occurs. And when that occurs and the unit cools, then the controller tries to get it to raise the temperature quickly to what it was before. And that's when these spikes in temperature are occurring. So there's a lot more to it. And uh, if you're going to use an oxalic acid delivery system uh, that's electric, then I highly recommend you find out more about what kind of controls there are when it comes to the parameters and the functioning of that system and what is really happening to the oxalic acid when it sublimates and is now in a gas form. So I want to be very careful about that and I'm still waiting for more research on that. So let's see, question number six comes from Lance from Santa Clara, Utah. So after watching your video featuring many of the vendors at the recent Hive Life conference, I had to purchase those Ross round clip adapters for deep boxes. They are so cool. Unfortunately, the majority of the rounds are only 40 to 60% filled out. I know what I did wrong and I will do better next year, but for my current situation, I'm interested in your thoughts. Do I, and there are three options here. Do I save them for next spring and let the bees finish them out? If I choose that option, I'm worried about the honey that is in the cells crystallizing. Viable concern. The other thing is you wanna make sure to put whatever partially filled uh, Ross rounds you have in your freezer, run them through a cycle, 24 to 48 hours, more than enough. Make sure that, you know, the wax mobs didn't leave any presents in there. Number two, this one's okay. Set the partially filled rounds out and let the bees rob out all of the honey and preserve the comb for next year. That's a viable option. You're feeding your bees. That's okay. Number three, Take all of the partially filled rounds. Cumulatively, there are probably 20, it says ponds, but I think he means rounds. And strain the honey out, or maybe it's supposed to be pounds. If there's 20 pounds of them, that's a lot. And strain the honey out of the comb like I would with capping. Okay, you could do that. I'm gonna say, please don't. Here's what I'm gonna suggest. Okay. For those of you who don't know, a Ross round is a way of making comb honey. It was developed in the United States right after World War II. And uh, the honey comes out, it's built upon beeswax foundation that's very thin, and it has double cells. So in other words, this face gets built out, this face gets built out. So we have a double thick round comb honey cassette that's ready to go in a container. Now what happens, based on what's being described here, is that maybe two thirds of that gets capped and you have a bunch of open cells, or maybe one side of it gets drawn out, capped, and the other side is only half done. So now what can we do with it? You can't really package it and sell it to people. Those things are in huge demand. 
especially among the older set. But comb honey, the interest in comb honey is growing. They go for about $12 each around here. And the cassettes that we're talking about is the Ross Rounds come in a Ross Round um, box that's built just for them. It looks like a shallow because all it needs to do is accommodate those cassettes. Well, these guys in New Zealand, Cirrusel got together and they realized they could take the Ross Rounds and it's not a it's not a hit on their patent or anything else. They had clips made up that join the Ross rounds one over the other and the clips take up the space on the end. So now we don't need a special box for them. And little note here, I took them and put them in my nuke hives, those five frame nukes. I put those double deep Ross rounds on the top. All of my nucleus hives are deep frames. So it was perfectly set for that. I put three of them in the center and then I used normal frames outboard of that. So what I would suggest that you do, because what do we have? We have edible comb made by the bees this year. It's never had brood or anything in it. So it is nothing but beeswax that is for the honey super. That's what you want. I don't want you to keep it for another year because I think having it fresh that year adds to the quality of it. It's fresh, it's new, the cappings are cool. Guess what I suggest? I suggest cutting out the round, cutting it in half, putting those in jars, because even the open cells, right? Those are open cells partially filled with honey, right? So then if we turn it into chunk honey, when we cut those out, put them in a jar, pour the rest of the honey in, it's gonna fill those cells. In fact, you could fill those cells carefully before you even put it in to make sure there's no air bubbles or something like that, but I don't think that's a problem. But here's what you just did. We created chunk honey, which is valuable, has a lot of demand. You put that right in the jar, you pour the honey around it. Now we have chunk honey from your Ross rounds and we have some cool radius shapes that are in there and the empty cells are filled with honey. What do you think about that idea? And if you have ideas on what Lance should be doing with these Ross rounds that are partially complete, what do you think that uh, could be done with it? I think uh, chunk honey. Way to go. It's easy to do. I think it would be great. All the empty spaces will be filled. And we just start fresh next year with brand new foundation. Get them right back on those hives early enough in the year and the strongest colonies, by the way. Comb honey appears to be one of the most challenging things to get out of your bees. So it's kind of like the flow hive set. The flow supers are on the strongest colonies and they fill those up. So strongest colonies again, build comb, but it has to be on early enough in the year for them to really work it up. And even mine aren't finishing them off until now. So flow supers too, finishing those off right now. And of course it's raining, but we have some more sunny weather ahead. So I think they're gonna still be able to fill them up. So I'm interested in your ideas too. Whenever you pull comb honey out of your hive, uh, whatever form it's in, uh, then always be sure to bag it and freeze it before you go on to process it. The other thing is freezing them. Oh yeah, let's take back, let's take a back, uh, let's back paddle on that too. So if the concern is don't want to hold them till next year because they might crystallize, guess what prevents honey from crystallizing in those cells? Freezing. It doesn't freeze the honey, but it's in freezer temperatures. So it arrests the development of crystals in your honey.
So honey in the freezer does not change. There you go. So there's another option. Now, if you already don't have enough freezer space for that, it's time to go shopping for one of those big horizontal freezers that uh, kids used to have when I was little. Anyway, moving on, looking forward to anyone who's got creative ideas on how to salvage that and use the honey this year. I recommend using it now and starting fresh next year. Question number seven. This comes from uh, Southeast New Mexico Bee Lady. It says, question, our retired ag agent and I are both beekeepers from the last century. I agree with Woods Houghton or Houghton that a honeybee's favorite color if they can be said to have such a thing, is basically goldenrod. Any thoughts on this? Okay, so here's the thing. When, when there's already a discussion going on and somebody has already committed to an answer and uh, said that, you know, well, their favorite color is goldenrod yellow, um, then this is where science comes in and you don't have to have an opinion because it's, it's science, so things can be proven in a, an experimental way that demonstrates that there's there's logic to it that our opinions are not a part of. But it is funny that just yesterday, uh, my grandson and I were making a video and uh, he had his way to be patch on his bee suit. And the bees were going after the yellow on his patch. And he asked me if bees really go after that color. And they said, yeah, they do. I don't know if this is goldenrod yellow, but they certainly like the yellow. But of course I had to do a deeper dive and get into what bees see, what they react to, how to measure that. Because remember that our honeybees are seeing with ultraviolet. Now flowers, by the way, that get noticed the most are larger flowers, flowers that are open. So there's a lot behind when a bee chooses a flower. The other thing is the reward system that the bee gets. So bees are very smart. And when they found a resource and there's a color or a shape associated with the resource that they benefited from, so whether that's nectar or whether that's pollen, uh, then the bee goes back after that exact same flower, that exact same resource that they benefited from before. So that's part of it. However, here's the disappointing part, because I wanted to be able to say, yeah, goldenrod yellow is number one for bees, even when they're shopping around through the ultraviolet spectrum. So first I'm going to tell you the top three colors for bees and then I'm going to explain how they determined it. So colors that attract the honeybees the most were, in order, purple, violet, and blue. So the cool part of that is that explains why they really go after uh, my hyssop right now. I guess they find it right away, but remember there's a reward associated with it. They're not just going up to colored pieces of paper and then exploring them and getting nothing out of it and still seeking out that same color. So the good news is though, uh, BC ultraviolet, which is invisible to humans, these colors reflect ultraviolet light and well. So they're also attracted to the brightness of these colors and the brightness colors that bees are attracted to after purple, violet, and blue are yellow, white, and orange. So that makes sense too, because larger flowers get their attention first, brighter colors get their attention. But remember what we're seeing, like we would look out and we see violet and purple and stuff and we think, well, that's not as bright as yellow, goldenrod. Yellow would get their attention right away. But in the ultraviolet spectrum, they're seeing 
purple, violet, and blue brighter than they see goldenrod. It was interesting too because there was something that reminded me in dog psychology. There were dog colors. So like purple or blue or something like that thrown in a yard of green was more contrasting to a dog's vision than throwing out something that was yellow, for example. So I know we're talking about bees, so let's stick to that for a minute. So then of course I always ask questions. Well, how did we determine that the bees were more excited by one color over another and had some kind of reaction, a favorable response to one color over another? So this is the explanation there. The bees were exposed to different colors of light while their brains were being scanned using functional magnetic resonance imaging, FMRI. The results show that the bees' brains responded more strongly to the colors purple, violet, and blue than they did to other colors. Although they had responses to these other colors, their first interest and their first response was when they were exposed to those colors. So they're also given choices of flowers that were the same color, flowers with different patterns on them, and they even modified the ultraviolet light signature on different flowers for more of the study. So anyway, it was scientific. They studied it. I like the idea that they would go after yellow, but apparently other colors take priority in the bee brain and uh, they've studied it. So moving on, question number eight comes from Tandy Beth from Western Kentucky. And it says, what country? The best. Okay, that's an interesting answer. Let's see, I'd love to know what you're going to do to winterize your ivory beehive, if anything. Will you please share your thoughts and plans? Okay, so for those of you who don't know, ivory bee, I-V-R-Y tag B. It's a horizontal hive that is cylindrical and uh, I have it on the Way to Be Academy's porch on the deck out there. And I only have one. So uh, this is my first year with it. And here's the thing. According to the designers, the inventors of it, which are in Israel, they, they're from a kibbutz in Israel, uh, it comes fully insulated and you don't have to do anything else to it to get it through winter. So here's the fun part of that. Um, they're full right now. So perfect timing too, by the way. Every frame in the ivory beehive now has drawn comb. The population is big. They're bearding on the front of it, just like all the other hives are doing. So am I going to do anything else to modify or prepare it or insulate it further, or put some kind of sheltering other than the fact that it's on a covered deck? It is exposed on two sides, three sides to the weather. So uh, I'm leaving it out there. It's going to be like that all through the winter here. We get heavy snow. If it gets snow covered, it's going to be snow covered. I'm just going to treat it like all my other hives where we just make sure that the entrance does not get blocked. Um, and it's insulated. The, the top is insulated. Front and back is insulated. The bottom is insulated. I think it's going to do okay. I think they're going to be just fine. And so I'm not doing anything to prepare it other than we're just going to document how the bees do through winter with it. But it is full and we have to do a video to back that up. So thanks for that question. If you want to know what the ivory beehive looks like, I'm going to put a link down associated with question number eight. It's the video that shows how I put it together, how we put the bees in it, and what the progress was. So that's going to be really good. 
All right, so now we're in the fluff section. That was the last question for today. So we're going to talk about different things that I'd like you to think about this time of year with your beehives here in North America. And of course, southern beekeepers are already past. I think they're in a dearth already. I don't know everything that's going on down there. So this will apply largely to the northern states and the northeast specifically. Um, this is a great time of year to get out at sunrise or a little earlier even. Look at your landing boards. If you look at your landing boards and you see dead drones, dead and dying drones on the landing board, that's no big deal because as we get to the end of the productive year, the worker bees are getting rid of the drones. They don't need them. They don't want them. They're starving them. And if they don't get the word, they're going to sting them to death. They also open drone pupa and drag them out. See, they uncap them and put them on the landing board. Now, if you see a bunch of drone in their pupa state, if you see drones, which are male bees, for those who don't know, if you see that on the landing board, that is a hive of interest. That's a hive that you might want to take a look at. And when I say that, I mean look at the brood health and condition. And uh, especially if we start to see worker brood also being pulled out and dragged out and left on the landing board. The reason you do this before sunrise is because as soon as daylight happens, Right now, your yellow jackets and other wasp species are going to be out and they harvest the dead and dying that are being cast out from your beehives. So, you know, by 10 a.m., when you finally get your third cup of coffee and you're out there, uh, the landing board's going to appear clear. That's why you want to do it early in the morning. So the real concern should be when you have these dead and dying drones and workers on your landing boards at night, uh, remember, they couldn't fly them out of the hive yet because bees don't fly at night. They, they need daylight to see to navigate. So undertaker bees will also help remove these landing board remnants. Um, you want to look at the condition of the pupae because sometimes they're pulling them out. Look at their wings. They may have deformed wings. They may have uh, other issues going on. Uh, you might want to do a mite count when you see a colony that's like that. Now, if you're treatment free, you still want to do a mite count because you want to know if this colony is about to crash with Varroa. Uh, the other thing is, for those of you who have multiple hives, this is a great opportunity to make comparisons because you're going to see very clearly that some colonies might be in trouble, others are doing just fine and dandy, lots of venting going on and everything else. So I was out this morning uh, doing those videos and looking at the landing boards. So those are hives that need your attention. We want to look at the brood, make sure the patterns are good, and also test for varroa mites if that's what you do. So uh, question or number two, things to think about. Hive alive uh, in your sugar syrup. So if we've got colonies that are lacking that have not built up enough weight um, that may have produced a queen late and things like that, or maybe a hive to late season swarm, uh, it's have your hive alive ready to go and you put it in sugar syrup form, it's very important that you not feed that before you've removed your honey supers. We don't want hive alive or any other feed additive, any essential oils or anything like that getting into the honey that we're going to take off and put in jars and consume or sell or give away. So after that's all done for all of your hives, then we can start to feed with hive alive, for example. And last year, I remember, um, I don't know if they'll run out this year, but last year, myself included, I got as many packets of Hive Alive Fondant that I could, and they, were, they ran out. So I don't know if they're going to run out again, but I'm telling you now, it won't spoil if you get it and have it on your shelf ready to go. 
I have enough right now for all of my hives for this winter. So because I'm putting fondant on my hives instead of dry sugar. So start to think about feeder configurations that you'll have. Hopefully nothing should change as far as your configuration goes. But if you have to accommodate patties, like if you're doing winter patties, or if you're going to put some kind of homemade fondant, or you're going to do the mountain camp sugar method with newsprint and dump it on top, something like that. These are emergency rations, but the weather can turn bad in unexpected ways and also turn bad and stay bad. We don't know what's going to happen. So uh, I do this, you know, two thirds of the way through October. So I'm not saying put it on now, but I am saying that uh, to head off a rush on the market, if there is one, uh, you want to make sure to have this stuff for your own bees ready to go. Because last year it was kind of frustrating that we couldn't get them in. And when they did show up, it was already winter time. So I, I have notes where I was putting fondant on mid-December. So for me, that was too late. I wish I had it sooner. And the other thing is the dose for the Hive Alive syrup, scientifically supported stuff. It's worked well for Nozema. And it's benefiting your bees in other ways that are not yet determined, which means further study needed, that kind of thing. Uh, essential oil claims are really wide and varied and sometimes really fantastic and opinion-based. So it's good to have one that has at least some scientific studies behind it. And uh, of course, crushing abdomens of your bees and doing nosema counts if you've got a microscope that has that capability. Uh, you will find that those that are treated with a hive alive syrup were demonstrating much lower spore counts than those that were without hive alive syrup. The fondant, it was difficult to tell if the fondant had an impact on the nosema counts, but it definitely had an impact upon survivability. In other words, the colonies that had the hive alive fondant on did much better, even though none of the hives ran out of resources. So those that had, they still had some honey left over in the spring, but the hive alive fondant pack um, colonies did better. And the other thing was they were consuming their hive alive fondant even though they had not yet consumed and exhausted the resources in their own stored honey. So I don't see that as a problem unless they run completely out of both. So if you put a fondant pack on, I would recommend not doing that too soon because bees are opportunistic and they're gonna go after the composition of that fondant and it's not free. So I would wait, put that on near the end of October if you're in my neck of the woods. So uh, we have two upcoming videos that I think are exciting because um, it demonstrated some behavior that I've speculated about for a long time and uh, it's going to be interesting. You're just gonna have to trust me on that. And it deals with swarm control and uh, hiving swarms and things like that, which I know that's it's a well-worn path. Everybody's got a method for collecting swarms. I've shown lots of them, BVACs, you know, the collecting them with a net and all of that. This has more to do with the pheromones and the composition of a swarm. In other words, where are these bees coming from? And uh, bees that congregate as a swarm in a bivouac location, um, we may be missing the boat a little bit regarding where they're coming from. In other words, what if there's no single hive that the bees swarmed from? What if we're just harvesting random bees from the air how do we get them all together? And then how do we use them? So that's what's coming up in these uh, 
there's there's two videos that are going to be fun. My grandson was out here yesterday. We were wrapping up uh, the last video. So I hope you'll watch them. And reduce entrances. Just be ready for that. Remember that mice, uh, I don't like mouse guards in general. Uh, but if you can reduce your entrance height, you can leave the width. For example, I showed this reversible bottom board. This has a 3 eighths of an inch height section on it. If you did that, I haven't found a mouse yet that can get in there. How do I test that? When you take a bottom board like this and you put it inside, I have two B buildings. So one is one building used to be just for a single observation hive. It's no longer an observation hive, but it's an observation building for rodents. So you set this up and you start to feed, in this case, it's deer mice. So you feed the deer mice here and then you put a box around it and you put a lid on the box and up inside it, you put a camera. Now, if it's three eighths of an inch, the mice have to chew the opening bigger to get in. And this even includes deer mice. When they're juveniles, they're gray in color. So they have these little heads that uh, need more than three eighths of an inch opening. So even though they can flatten their bodies out and get through remarkable openings, their little head skulls can't get through there. So if you can make a three eighths inch opening, you can leave the width open if you've got a hive that's really productive. But now we're talking about robbing and we don't want the mice when the weather turns cold. We don't want mice to gain access into your hives. So it is fun to experiment and find out. Even the pygmy shrew doesn't get through a 3 8 inch opening. So that's interesting. I don't have pygmy shrews. I was really excited. We have shrews, short-tailed shrews, but uh, they have no chance of getting into a beehive. So you'll find out, those of you who, unfortunately, when you took apart your hives in spring and found out that there had been a mouse in there urinating, defecating, chewing your honeycomb, eating the honey and everything else, just rampant in there, building nest material. If you see a bunch of grass and stuff in the bottom of your hive through the entrance, that's too late. You already have one in there. That's why I'm telling you now, because you're listening to me, I want you to be prepared by reducing entrances enough now to prevent, when the weather turns cold, these small mammals from taking up residence inside your beehives. So, and when you're packing down your hives, a lot of people, you know, we're packing down from three boxes to two and so on. And uh, it's twofold. One is when you're harvesting your honey, we put an escape board on. For me, that's my favorite method to remove bees from a honey super, a skateboard. Which escape board is my favorite? It is the Cirrusel escape board. It's called the Great Escape. Look it up. It's perfect. It gets the most bees out. I put them on the day before, remove it the day after. Now, the reason I bring it up is because it's also a great tool for packing down your hives. I do not have one for my nucleus hives, but then I don't pack down the nucleus hives. I stop them at the third box and I don't go higher than that. If they swarm after that because they built up too many, then that's okay because they just restored and replenished themselves. They're full of honey and resources. They make it through winter extremely well. Nucleus hives, three boxes tall, handle any winter here. Unless they end up queenless too late in the year. But anyway, uh, you use these escape boards and then you pack down. And that's how you get all those bees out of those upper boxes. It seems like you have too many bees, like there's no way they're going to fit. 
but they do. So especially as we get into October, I'm just planning ahead because once again, often we find out that we have a need for a tool that we can't find. And we always wait thinking that we can go on Amazon or wherever and click an order and have it by the end of the week. But they run out of stock on these things. And Cirocell is one of those companies that their products are not sold on a lot of different uh, shopping sites that we like to go to for our bee supplies. So I tell you about that because before, when I was trying to get them, they only had the eight frame size. So they sell the eight and 10 frame Langstroth compatible sizes, but they only had eights and I needed tens. And that's what I'm telling you now because I have everything I need. So now I'm free to tell you to go shopping after I took care of myself first because it's only right. That's what I should do. Okay, so that allows you to pack things down. Think about your insulation, feed, rapid rounds, whatever you're going to do. And don't forget your double bubble insulation. That stuff never runs out of stock. Every home center carries it. So that's it for today. I want to thank you for joining me and spending your time. I look forward to your comments down below. And if you're not already a subscriber, please, I invite you to subscribe. If you want to talk about bees right now, you have a question, it's just not going to wait. You don't want to take the chance that I might not talk about it next Friday. I recommend you go to the Facebook group, The Way to Be Fellowship. If you just Google The Way to Be Fellowship, it'll show right up. You click on that, takes you to Facebook, and it's a social group where you can ask questions on any level. All questions, no matter how basic, no matter how advanced, We've got a bunch of really great people there that uh, are keeping the conversation going and making sure that no one ever gets picked on for not understanding something. So it's one of those things where every question is welcome, all levels of beekeeping, day or night, 24-7. There are people all over the world, even moderators from all over the world, that will be happy to help direct you if you've got some kind of bee question going on. So that's it for today. I hope you have a fantastic weekend. Thanks for joining me.